The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. I can take over the conversation. Yes, I do. So, so I will you, just kick you under the table. Yeah, when you need to slap my knee and say, Mothy, <laughs> back off, please do, because I will Bam. talk and talk and talk, mm-hmm. as educators are known to do. <laughs> you educated? I won't. Well, I try to be, though I grew up in Pickwick Dam. <laughs> uh, oh, damn. <laughs> and got my high school diploma at Hardin County High School. <laughs> oh, Lord. I'm out of here. And my other diploma at Memphis College of Art. Late and great. Okay. Hey, so we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk. We're gonna talk bullshit for a couple minutes. Yes, we are. So we will intro. Are we ready? And then we will bring you in, and uh, we'll start off with you know. I mean, we know who you are and where you came from, but just a brief introduction, and then we will start chewing on some topics. Okay. So, and you let us know anytime that we need to take a break or you know anything. We're very accommodating here. Okay. And you can Are choose the topics yourself. You know, okay. we'll ask you questions, but if you like, yeah. this is on my mind. Yeah. What's on, it. what's on your heart? What is on your heart? Um, you know, I just, I'm a, a little overwhelmed right now. It's just yeah. been an emotional week. Uh, shit, an emotional month. Um, and so, you know, I do think that it's relevant and I don't want you all to get any attacks for having me on and then not like addressing it. So if you want you know, we should at least have some conversation about that. Um, my PR would definitely be like, no, if they said no, <laughs> leave it. <laughs> but I just, you know, legitimately uh, would like at least to say something, um, not take up the whole show in any way. Uh, you know, I think <laughs> what's on my heart, I just, Memphis, <laughs> it's just, a scary place to be right now um i was just thinking about like really all of the trauma of this campaign for me and how what's happened this last week you know has made it even you know the the attacks on my race my body um my gender have been even tougher since then because people who aren't even allies to the lgbtq community are using it as an excuse Yeah, they saw daylight and they went for it. And they went for it. Uh, But that then gets erased because I'm a bigot, you know, Uh, according. The biggest bigot I've ever seen. (laughs) And, you know, just how the media won't let it go. Yeah. You know, I walked in my parents' house last night and they were still like it was on, you know, Channel 3, Tammy Sawyer Controversy. It's already been recycled like three times at this point and and several media outlets. And it's. You know, but most of that's a backlash. We're here on new media, right? Correct. And I think another part of the conversation is how we chose not to use traditional media. We used print, and I went to the people where pretty much the people made me who I am off social media. My audience, my family, my, you know, my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I built my platform on social media, um, and didn't even realize I was building a platform, mm-hmm. right? Like, I took to social media when it rolled out, like (laughs) other people take to other very harmful things (laughs) and just, you know, so I think, you know, they don't get how I've been able to move forward because of the use of social media. And they think it's not, you know, fair that. Oh, please. Yeah. And so that that's why the attacks continue. But I think more than anything, I just want to do your show. I don't want to focus on that or harp on that, you know, poor little Tammy, like, 
but I just want y'all to know, like, it takes a lot to have me in your space, and I appreciate that. Well, you're very welcome. Yes. We're pleased Absolutely. to have you here. Hello. <laughs> no, we've been, Lisa was talking, she was like, you know who, who, sh- who we could get for the show? We should get Tammy. And I was, and that was a few months ago, and I was like, okay, well, she's, she's very busy, <laughs> so we're going to see. We're going to see. And I think that just destiny kind of lined up correctly. I felt in my heart that it was imperative that we reach out to you yeah. and make sure that because right now, you know, you think 10 years back, you think five years back, you know, the internet started out as the wild, wild west. And then as if you're a fan of MIA, I really follow her philosophy when it comes to technology and the internet changed hands. And mm-hmm. we went from being um, kind of the wild, wild west to super corporatized. And then now I think that there's a diffusion again an internet culture that we're not able to track with very right, quickly because right. it's 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 rapid. Yeah. So stories, misinformation, uh, publicity, especially you know publicity that is on fire, spreads so quickly. Right. And I want in my own community, we need to come together and be sure that we're having conversations that are based on facts. Right. That are based on what we've seen with our own eyes. Yeah. And what we've seen is that you are a person of astounding character and you're a person that when you announced that you were running for mayor, I was so proud because I was like, that is another educator. <laughs> that is one of us. I have seen the way that you connect with people and I have seen the way that you treat people. Thank you. And you know, all queer people have a trauma that comes from leaving home that comes from the inborn fear that your family, like a light switch is not going to love you anymore. Mm-hmm. And that follows us. We, we've all dealt with it in our own ways and healthy ways. And I think part of my own healing process after you know, I came out when I was 14, I came out to my father and part of my healing process was as a grown person coming to understand that it took my parents a long time to completely understand it. They were supportive. Mm-hmm. They wanted to do the best they could for me. And I had so much anger that they couldn't meet me exactly where I stood in that moment. And that we couldn't have resolved that in the moment. But now I realize that I have to be forgiving of that because that yeah. was part of their process. And any family member of a queer person that is trying to figure things out, anybody who is an ally and a supporter, that is part of our process that we all share together. Mm-hmm. That is still us being under the same umbrella, the understanding and the coming to understand. So I just, I think that this is imperative. Yeah. Okay. So are we, we've been rolling all this time. Yes. <laughs> so we can we can edit this however we want. What what a good way to start. Yeah, let's get serious first. Yes. Like real serious. All right, Moth. It's been a while. Yes, it has. How are you? Um, I it's it's been <laughs> I feel as though I've been knocked off the shelf <laughs> and that I am a million beautiful pieces and I'm picking each and every one of them up and I'm taking my gold glitter glue and I am gluing each piece back together. Moth, you said you weren't going to use drugs anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I never said anything about Gorilla Glue or, or Glitter Glue. I mean, it's hard to find Glitter Glue these days. That was really popular in the 90s. Now you can only find it in the Dollar Tree. 
It's not even good glitter glue. But good, good to know. <laughs> good good from. morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, and yeah. good night, listeners, wherever you are listening. It's me, Moth Moth Moth, but please call me Mothy. And I'm sitting here with my favorite partner in crime, the wonderful Lisa Michaels, also known as the Purple Haired Tramazon. Exactly. And we are bringing you a an emergency special episode <laughs> live. Well, almost live. <laughs> Uh, straight from the OAM network, and we have a wonderful guest here we with sure us this as hell morning. Do. She is a, by definition, a mover and a shaker. So you will find yourself in perfect company here. The wonderful Miss Tammy Sawyer, who is running for mayor of Memphis. Everybody, round of applause! Golf clap! <laughs> All yes, five of go. us. <laughs> oh wait. Four, Four of us. <laughs> oh, you came from Pickwick. The math wasn't your thing. Yeah, I've got I've got soft teeth from the drinking of water in Pickwick and swimming in that lake. So, but Tammy, good morning. Thank you so much for coming and being with us today. Thank you for both of you for having me on here. Oh hell yes, I've I've been a fan of yours ever since I first met you. Do you remember we crossed paths at Midtown Crossing yep. Girl one time? Mm-hmm. You threw me out of the restaurant, but other than that, it's fine. <laughs> did I throw you out? <laughs> No, I think that it'd be rather hard to throw Lisa out of I know, anywhere. Like, I don't remember throwing you out. Uh, Oct- Octavia's got my back, actually. So. Exactly. I, I was about to say now, you know, I try to throw you out w- with a wash every day mm-hmm. and you just hang on to that laundry oh, basket, baby. Yes, yeah. I do. She's, hey, nothing has ever left Lisa Michaels' hands without claw marks. <laughs> and that's something that we share in common. Well, Tommy, me and you have something in common. What's that? I love the city. Oh, me too. That's why I moved back. Yeah. You know, I tr- I say that on stage all the time. I love Memphis, Tennessee. Does Memphis have its problems? Yes, of course. But Memphis has also got magic. Mm-hmm. You know, there is something to the city that just, I don't know if it's where we are geologically or the river or the trees or whatever the, in the people. I love Memphis. Yeah. And I would like to see Memphis do better. You know, that's why you're sitting at this table. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. I love the city. I chose to come back home to the city. Um, even when the city isn't its best, you know, I still choose Memphis. And, um, you know, that's something that you, I think, for the rest of your life, if you choose Memphis, you kind of choose Memphis every day, um, you know, because there's so much out there that it competes with, that it strives to, you know, are we the next Austin? Are we the next Nashville? How can we, you know, be different than we are right now? And so there's always like this competition in people's hearts, you know, especially if you're someone who has privilege and opportunity and you can just pack up and go anywhere. Mobility and something that I've noticed when I moved here in 2011, you know, I grew up in Pickwick Dam about two hours away. And when you get back to Pickwick, you know, it's it's rich Memphis folks in cabins and then stories about how rough Memphis is and you don't really get anything in between that. So moving here for art college, I was like, I I don't know if I'm going to survive in the city. And lo and behold, like I fell so deeply in love with this town because of not only its history when it comes to its artistic history, Memphis has history, both good mm-hmm. and bad. I worked mm-hmm. as a tour guide downtown. <laughs> we can talk about anything from, from the riots to the yellow fever. Memphis right. has hit some bumps in the road. Right. But the people that are here have got the most beautiful eyes and the most beautiful aspirations. This is a place where there is so much opportunity and it feels like there is an opportunity for things to actually happen. Yeah. I think that I go to really huge cities and I feel like I'm just static. 
Yeah. And, and I'm paralyzed. When I'm yeah. in Memphis, I'm like, I can grow and thrive here. Right. I think many people feel that. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I'm not a New York girl and I feel the same thing. Like when I go to New York, I'm like, no, <laughs> one, I'll never earn enough money to live here a second. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you've just got to be made for that, you know, and have a certain type of spirit for that. But here I did, I agree. You feel like you can breathe. You can feel like you can write your own story. You know, um, I lived in DC and I think that's the closest big city to, I think that's why I love it so much too is because it is so much like Memphis as in, you know, you're kind of there to write a few chapters of your story, but it's not permanent. Whereas with Memphis, it feels like it can be like the beginning and the end of yeah. your story. This is where the home fires burn. Yeah. I'm never homesick as for a, anywhere. As yeah. a person who lived here for one year of my life when I was 18, I always tell people I can never get the city out of my blood ever. Mm-hmm. Even all these years that in between living in California and Memphis, I always missed Memphis. I always wanted to be closer to California than it was. Yeah. So, you know, I get it. You know, I, I don't even know if I ever want to leave the city again because I know it'll hurt. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and as far as opportunities, yes, this, this is a city full of opportunities. All right, let's get real. <laughs> what do you want to do for this city? What, what, what would you like to change? What's top of the heap? (laughs) What's top of the heap? I mean, you just mentioned the word opportunity and, you know, it is full of opportunity, but a large majority of people don't even get access to that opportunity, you know? Um, And so for me, it's about right-sizing the city in a way that everyone has access to the same choose not on one dream, you know, that we all have. Um, I think the love for Memphis, <laughs> sorry, it's paparazzi outside the window. Uh, That's all right. <laughs> I think <laughs> the love for Memphis is um, spread, you know, through every corner. Like you said, people love Memphis. They brag on being from Memphis. But Memphis doesn't always show its love to everyone. And so, you know, for me, it's about having a leader and not just one person, leadership, right? So there needs to be a new city hall. There needs to be a new administration that opens its doors to the entire city. Um, I don't think Memphis has ever had an advocate in the position of mayor and doesn't know that that's a great thing, <laughs> you know, doesn't know the opportunity that will come just from having someone who is having those conversations with people who never can step foot inside City Hall, who knows what transportation insecurity actually looks like for people and recognizes the urgency for that, who goes inside classrooms and reads with children, you know, reading third grade books to fifth graders breaks my heart, but they love it. And I'm, you know, love the joy on their faces. But I also know that if I'm reading them third grade books and they're fifth graders, then, you know, by the time they're eighth graders, they'll probably still be reading third grade or fourth grade. The gap gets even wider. Um, You know, and the things that we get excited about here, like I got invited to a momentum party last week, which is to celebrate the new union road development. And yeah, cool. We're going to have another mall development downtown. And no one's going to be able to afford it, right? right? They're going to build these condos and apartments up downtown. And, 
like I'm a millennial. Will I get lured into looking to see what they look like and get excited about it? Yeah, but I'm also not going to be able to afford $2,000 or even $1,500, $1,600, nor, and I have the privilege of having good income, right? Right. And so if the majority of, you know, black Memphis, if the majority of brown Memphis <laughs> is born, you know, below the line of poverty and still lives below the line of poverty, they almost 40% of our city, the 40% of adults who earn wages in Memphis make below a living wage. It's like 35 to 40%. I didn't know that it was that high a metric. Yeah. But I also work off of assumption. Right. Because there's that fear within me that yeah. it's going to be far worse when I look into the <laughs> eye. Well, Tammy's got all kinds of fans. Everybody, everybody Our studio is in the middle of the concourse, and it looks like being in a fishbowl. And T- Tammy, you are also welcome to cha- trade sheets, trade sheets with me. Uh, what trade seats with I'm me? If you would not like, to get distracted. Yeah. Oh, because I'm the same way. I am so ADHD. Uh, you'd. Everybody had trouble with me in the classroom because yeah. I was always doodling. We in the still corner. have trouble with you. What are you talking <laughs> about? Still I, I know everybody has trouble with me. But I just I, can't help it. <laughs> I just think the thing I want to do for Memphis is lead us through one and the pending economic downturn, recession. Yes, you know the coming. word that everybody wants to debate or deny or not say, and we know what recession looked like in two thousand seven. Not just for us, but the entire country. We know what recession is going to look like now. I mean, I was at the United automobile workers uh, strike last week or this week. Um, And we have a huge GM parts plant here. I didn't know that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Me either. (laughs) So there's a whole um, pretty much industrial park in South Memphis, in South Memphis that's full of logistics warehouses. And we have a huge GM plant where they just fill orders all day, you know, put the parts in a box, ship them out over and over again. And so as part of a national strike, they, you know, shut down the plant. I think they said only managers and contractors were working and they were outside on the street, 100 degree heat under tents. And so we took some water and Gatorade. But, you know, they were talking about how 2007 came, you know, the automobile industry got bailed out and then it kept doing well. And that now they're finding out that the bailout wasn't even based on bankruptcy like the American people were told. The bailout was based on the fact that their contingency funds were reducing. Not their profit or bottom line, but their contingency funds. So what they've discovered is now it's 2019, auto industry has recovered, not just their bottom line, but they're making record profits and they're still trying to cut back benefits. Right. How greedy can you be? How right? greedy can you be? And so they're saying, and then they're trying to get the employees, right? Again, people who are making, you know, not extremely high wages uh, for this type of work um, to pay more into their own benefits package. And they're not even saying like, we need you to take care of everything. We're just saying, you're making record profits. They'll try to make us pay more. Yeah, this and, doesn't line up. Right. And they're saying because of the impending recession, but- in 12 years, you got bailed out, first of all. Oh, yes, and did. then second, in 12 years, you've been able to um, expand, you know, your profit. And now you're saying you have to prepare us for the recession. You, the worker, have to prepare us for the recession. So that very long-winded story is just a way to show what the recession is going to look like in Memphis because we rely so heavily on temporary work. 
on manufacturing and logistics work. And if we're not prepared for the people of Memphis to get pay cuts and, you know, temp hours cut and benefits cut and have services that, you know, fill in the gap, right? Be able to have wraparound services in schools, start to put funding into education. Zero dollars of our $750 million budget goes to city education. Are you serious? May, may we pause right there? Because as I was refreshing, I, um, whenever I interview somebody, I just think about, okay, what's my entire relationship with them? What's all the media that I've seen so far about them? So over the past 24 hours, I did a Tammy refresher course <laughs> just to, to get back to, to today's current date. But when that number, when that data popped up and two days ago you were with the commercial appeal, I was like, my God, <laughs> like, so where are all of these funds being allocated and right now? And what is, what's your plan <clears throat> for figuring out how to get the chips to settle again? So we have a $750 million. That's a rough number, right? Mm -hmm. So it's probably like seven. 42 or something like that, but $750 million budget of that $750 million, about 70% goes to what is called public safety. So police and fire. Some of it goes to pay. Some of it goes to, uh, you know, ammunition. Some of it goes to programs, but the majority of that 70% goes to police and fire. Then of the remaining 30%, you're looking at like, are there any other services, right? Any other departments, um, you know, construction, public safety, I mean, um, public works, right? Um, and that type of thing, salaries, pensions that aren't related to public safety. Mm -hmm. So 70% of our budget goes to police and fire. And the majority of that 70% goes to police. Um, and that's just not a right sized budget for us. No. Um, and also, you know, our police force still doesn't have the benefits that they have been seeking. Our police force still doesn't have the benefits. Um, you know, Mayor Strickland has said that he increased the number by 450 police officers in four years. Just came out this week that actually the net increase had only been three. So actually, yeah, Whoa. three, as <laughs> yeah. in one, two, three, not 300. As in three. Three. <laughs> as in like the three we could probably find in the concourse right now. Wow. <laughs> like, yes. Wow, Jim. Uh, you know, and I think much has been made of my relationship with police. So let me just be very clear. First and foremost, I'm a black woman. I'm a black woman who was raised between uh, the suburbs of Chicago and Memphis, Tennessee and rural Tennessee, Fayette County. Um and so my experiences with police have been mostly that of what you could expect, regardless of the privilege that I talk about. You know, I grew up relatively uh, solidly middle class, uh, private school education. But too often I've been in situations where because of that privilege, I was not believed to be uh, uh, in the spaces that I was supposed to be in. Right. Um my friends could walk through and then I'm like, what are you doing here? Well, <laughs> it's my school's too, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. Um, you know, being pulled over in my parents' car, you know, Christmas morning, 16 years old, uh, because the officer didn't believe that that was my car. Um, you know, watching my brother 
get chased by, um, you know, a teenage white kid in a pickup truck with a bat and called the N-word. And when my parents called the police, them being like, yeah, I don't think you should press charges. That's just kids playing. You know, maybe no, what did your no, son do first? Um, having a cousin who went to jail at 18 when I was 11 and we've never seen him again. I'm now 37. Um, oh, but well, I've seen him in jail, <laughs> you know, but he's never seen the light of day again. Um, and so I have a relationship that is colored by my color, <laughs> by my identity. And what I do believe is that policing in America has to be reformed and that it can be better, that we have to be honest. Yes, police officers put their lives on the line every day when they make the choice to enter into. Remember, that's a choice when they make the choice to enter into that career. But also that does not mean that they should be allowed to have the bias that police officers hold. I was invited this week to attend a um, there's a training that the district attorney does. Uh, you've probably seen it where you do a shooting simulation. And if you to prove to people that if you were an officer, you would accidentally kill somebody or injure somebody. And so it's really biased, right? You know, they invite people to do this so that they can be like, well, Tammy, you know, you shot three people. I'll never want to hear you say anything when there's a police involved shooting in, you know, real life. One, I'm not a trained police officer. Mm, right. right. Two, this is not my career. And three, like, this is a, a simulation. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I declined the invitation. They kept, they sent me two, three emails the last one being Commissioner Sawyer, like directly, we really think you need to be here in light of all that's going on in our community. And I said, in light of all that's going on in our community, we need to be having conversations about the implicit bias that police officers carry uh, into these situations. In light of what, all that's going on in our community, we need to be having conversations where the community gets to sit down with police officers and with de- deputies and coming together. Because right now the ocean is between them seems endless it is is so big and and because we refuse to you know bring them together these two groups right it's only going to get bigger and the animosity only gets bigger um and so people are like you're anti-police and no i'm pro public safety Mm -hmm. right because we all deserve to be saved and i am pro policing reform and that's a shift in the culture and i'll give you a very quick example stockton california which is smaller-ish than Memphis, but it also has the same, you know, makeup of poverty and race. So they uh, elected the youngest mayor in the history of Memphis, Michael Tubbs, a guy that I look up to a lot. I'm not in the history of Memphis. The youngest mayor, and they elected the youngest mayor in the history of the country. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. I think he was elected at 23 or 24. Whoa. Um, He's now about 27. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But what um, Mayor Tubbs was able to do was he hired a police director um, who believed in community oriented policing. And through this community policing reform model, they were able to not only reduce the number of violent homicides. Now they still have a crime problem, right? They still have crime numbers, quote unquote, but they were able to reduce violent crime and they were able also to reduce the number of um, police involved shootings. So people shooting each other was going down, right? And then police officers shooting the community was also going down. 
Because of the relationships that they were building. Mm -hmm. Because of the intentional, he also started a baby bonds program. Every baby born, once he started, received a $50 savings account, right? 18 years later, imagine being able to cash that out. Yeah. And go to college or start your business or move. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) have have a stepping stone. Have a stepping stone. TheOAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Have a service, project, or product you need to get the word out on? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com and ask about our podcast sponsorship packages. As an educator, I don't know if you've thought about this or this um, sort of philosophical cloud has entered your mind at any point. I, When I'm in the classroom and when I'm with children... I'm constantly trying to stand in respect for them and stand in respect that doesn't look down on their experience. You know, a child is a tiny human who has a limited scope of experience at that moment. And it's very precious that we respect that, that we also, but we also need to encourage them that, you know, we have got so much. The world is very, very big. Right. But I stand with that respect because children don't have anything. Right. Implicitly like, no child really owns anything. Right. And that was something that so many of us, when we when we turn 18 and we get out of the household, we reckon with that really hard, really fast. Yeah. Because once even the smallest of safety nets are gone, you have to really get a thicker skin yeah. to make it out in the world. And that is, you know, and when we bring questions of privilege into this conversation, I don't, I haven't read this phrase yet. This is something that came from my head. Privilege blindness. Mm-hmm. There is, depending on your circumstances, mm-hmm. you know, all people have privilege. Absolutely. Everyone in this room has a different um, suite, a different toolbox of privilege. Right. And I try to, at this moment, I'm trying to take that and use it as an actual toolbox. Absolutely. And like, how can I use what I already have, what I've been given, the the white innocence, the white yeah. safety that I have carried throughout my life yeah, and make sure that I use that as a stepping stone so that we can all step up as often as possible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing that shocked me when I moved to Memphis was the 10,000 untested rape kits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Has that been rectified? So I believe that the number has been reduced significantly. Um, but remember that I'm running against the mayor who said that he didn't care nothing about that. Are you uh, serious? You so, know, so does that not speak Mayor Harrington, vo- let me be clear, not Strickland. Does that not speak volumes about the attitude of the city towards women? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so here we are, it's 2019, right? And I am the first woman to ever have been treated as a viable candidate in a mayoral race. Um, and yet they still haven't debated you. And they still won't debate me. They call me a distraction. They, you know, uh, call me a young lady, tell me to get back in the oven. I'm not ripe yet. I mean, like, it's disgusting. Uh, Um, You know, and so, and the questions that I have to answer so often that aren't related to my policy, but who are you married to? Why don't you have children? Why aren't you married? What's your sexuality? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what are you going to do when you get emotional? 
you know, because women get emotional. And so, you know, <laughs> who's going to be the man standing next to you to help oh, you figure things out? That and news <laughs> is going to rock the world. <laughs> women get emotional. Yeah. Oh, oh my, my goodness. Men, you know, men have been hiding that for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, you know, but, um, and, and that it, but, but beyond me, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it does show how we treat women. I'll tell you. So, you know, as an educator, you know this, but. We don't provide sanitary napkins. Well, we don't call them sanitary. We don't provide menstrual products for administrators in schools anymore. And the reasoning is not because we can't afford to, but because uh, the girls might play with them or, you know, they might have the, you know, stick pads all over the lockers or something like that. Um, There's some youth organizing uh, 901 period day, which is part of a, national period like strike um and i'm going to be a part of that i'm proud to be a part of that um you know something that i've actually not talked about yet is that like in two months i'm having a hysterectomy and you know as a 37 year old woman i'm about my period is about to end my ability to reproduce and this is happening in the midst of my mayoral campaign (laughs) You you know and i only share that because i've been thinking about how to share that journey as we talk about what is a woman Right. And so um, my own understanding of what it means to be a woman has evolved to this point of like for a long time, I thought that success for me would only be cemented by me producing another human being. Right. Um, That my full womanhood would be challenged and we won't even let girls (laughs) have access to the product that they need, you know, um, I have a friend who just daughter just started her cycle and, you know, he's a single dad. And so I'm like, you can't talk to her about this. Like she's five, like mm-hmm. here's this book, here's these products. I like send them to the store. Like you need to get her chocolate and ice cream and you need to tell her you love her. <laughs> and you know, cause she has three brothers, yeah. right. you and know, they- I was like, you need to give her a safe space for this. Um, you know, you need to talk to them about how they treat her. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so we won't give these girls. I'm all over the place, y'all. I'm long winded. No, no, <laughs> oh, I'm enjoying it because I, uh, he's I shutting up. Yeah, I it's right. I'm long winded. I am here to listen. But so we won't give ministrators, and and you know, we say ministrators now to make sure we're inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, in our city, it's not. A, an inclusive descriptor, right? We, we always yeah. have trouble with inclusivity. Right. Well, I, right now, we are struggling with inclusivity mm-hmm. and with, especially with language and semantics mm-hmm. is something that the needle moves every single day yeah. when it comes to our language that's surrounding this. But sorry to cut you off. No, I mean, the, we just grew up girls and boys and it's hard when you're looking at children because, you know, you think of all the children's books, girls and boys, mm-hmm. right? And I think that our adult educators a lot are working to shift their language to more inclusive. That's the work I do with Teach for America is to teach, you know, teachers. I have a whole slide where I say, don't use girls and boys. Use y'all. Y'all means all. Love, <laughs> it's y'all the easiest all. thing to do. As someone who gets misgendered all the friggin' time, I love y'all. Yeah. Because it's, you know, gender neutral. Yeah. It, it works. The and South did something the right. The South did something right. Who knew? <laughs> if they knew, <laughs> if the South knew, they would not. Uh, <laughs> you know, they've tried to take y'all back. But so we don't give administrators access to 
the products that they need. They actually have to take a walk of shame to the office to get it. And, you know, um, if you get your cycle and you go to the bathroom, you want to resolve that right then and there. Yeah. You don't want to have to pull your pants up or your dress down and walk down the hall and then walk back. We are also starting to see schools. I see you. I'm sorry. No, but no, we're no, no, also no. trying to see schools Starting this year, teachers, and this has been, people have been talking about it nationally, but it's happening across the country. They are limiting, kids started school this year being told they could only use the bathroom four times in a semester. In a semester? Uh, okay, whoa. <laughs> so, like, you can't leave my class more than four times. And teachers are thinking, and, and administrators and school systems are saying that they're doing it because, you know, kids skip class or they play in the hall. But if I am an administrator... <laughs> not an administrator, but if I have my period, <laughs> if I have my period and I am in your class, you know, and I have moth for history and you tell me I can't get out of the seat like, more four, than four, four strikes, times, girl. Sorry. Sorry to sit there and bleed and tell me what year, you know, George Washington crossed the river. I don't give a damn what year <laughs> he crossed the river. I need a tampon. Yeah. And I got to go to the office to get it. And then I go to the bathroom. And by the time I get back, you're upset because I've been gone 30 minutes and you thought I was playing. And that was really how long it took me to go find a tampon and get to the bathroom and clean myself up when we could just have a box of damn tampons in the bathroom and some wipes and everyone would be okay and mind their business. That's how we treat women. We make women jump through hoops to just live oh, their life. You're talking to a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for letting me talk about no. that. Oh my gosh, Tammy. That, because this becomes, I've been thinking a lot. I've been watching Ayanna Presley very closely in the work that she's doing with childhood trauma. I think about, especially in Memphis, yep. the barriers that stand between children and being able to walk in the door in the morning, feel supported, feel like, that is their space, that, that eight hours during the school day, that's their time. Yep. It should feel like their time. This is time for them to grow, for them to flex their intellectual muscles. And if there are barriers, if that child is not even, they haven't even stepped on the school bus yet, if they have fear in their heart because of not having access to sanitary products that everyone should have access to, yep. like that's, that's just cruel. Yes. It's, it's vile. It's vile. Because we can't talk about education and wanting to invest in education until we remove as many of those barriers as possible. And this covers things like bullying. This covers things like figuring out how to mediate um, gender and gender expression in our schools. I don't remember which state it was, but there was a state politician that was Telling the inmates in the prison system that sanitary um, products was a luxury. Yep. No, no. <clears throat> you need it just to live your life. <laughs> so I just looked it up. In Africa, one out of 10 girls miss school because of periods. In America, it's one out of five. Really? One out of five. Because of the shame. I mean, you know, yeah, well, the, the patriarchy. It's, it's the access. It's, you know, I'm not, I don't have any products at home, so I might not get the products at school. Um, you know, I just talked about my own, like, reproductive health. But as the world, you know, continues to swiftly tilt, 
we're finding more girls with fibroids. So the pain, um, you know, the heavy bleeding is high. It can be crippling. My first commission meeting, I bled through my pants and, uh, you know, I, again, thank you for (laughs) like, this is work that I want to do. And so like, even Pat, like, this is not about running for mayor. This is work that's heavy on my heart. Um, But I'm the, you know, ranking (laughs) black elected woman (laughs) in the county of Shelby. (laughs) And I bled through my pants and had to call a friend to bring me tampons because I couldn't find tampons in the building. Um, And so again, you think about the it's not there's not even enough privilege in the world to make because the conversation isn't had. Think about the extreme privilege that I have versus a girl in the eighth grade in Fraser, right? And yet I still had to use napkins. Still until can't find a friend, the tampon in the building. <laughs> right. And that friend showed up with a Walgreens bag and had to get buzzed in by the staff and you know, it was a whole thing. Like and still can't find what I needed and, you know, having to like, you know, make sure my pants are covered and, you know, my seat gets cleaned and have that conversation with staff. And, you know, again, now take away that happened to Tammy Sawyer and think about one in five of girls who don't even get to study, don't even get to have like an everyday, right? Like I could call somebody and be like, I need you to rush up here. You know, I had staff who was able to, like, make it all go away. (laughs) You know, there was a leave in the office. (laughs) Like, I had the money to cash out someone and be like, you know, go get some Tampax Ultra right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, one in five. And so, and not even, so if we just think about that, and that, that goes directly back to, like, why rape kits would sit around for so long, because nobody thinks that women's bodies matter. Yes. And and they don't even, you know, when you say that to people, when you say to people blank doesn't matter to you, they get offended, right? But what they don't realize is you're saying mattering to somebody means you're in their head, right? You're a part of their natural conversation. In your design of schools and offices, excuse me, access to Menstrual products is not a part of your conversation. It's not a part of your general makeup. So it does not matter to you. That is not a judgment, right? right? And we have turned matter into a judgment. It does not matter to you that you will build bathrooms without tampon dispensers. Because that is not important. something important. It's right. not a part of your identity. It's not a part of your conversation. And yet, by doing that, we have turned the lights off. Mm-hmm. on so many kids one in five and and then if you were to take the statistics of memphis i'm i don't know our numbers but i can only imagine we are somewhere between that one in five that's here and one in ten in africa yeah yes <laughs> okay <was>, we <laughs> okay everybody okay friends we're here we're here that was Fabulous. Fabulous. Especially, you know, I want to know what's at the top of your heart. Cause what you wake up in the morning thinking about and like urgency, I messaged you a few mornings ago and I was like, I, I don't think that I can, I can just not do something for <laughs> like, you know, and we've, we're three busy ladies yeah. sitting at this table. But so right now in this era, 
like saying what's at the top of your heart is imperative because it's bound to get buried (laughs) by the rancor of this world. I mean, things are moving at a breakneck pace They are, and it's so hard for people to keep up. I see um, yesterday we had art for votes, which was our first foray, foray into that. And that's just citizens coming together and trying to, incentivize people to just go out and just vote please check your status please sign up yep. if we can that was at choices yes I drove if, past yes oh <laughs> i saw the you sign saw, waving <laughs> yeah. you saw me shaking my booty out there um because we were just like okay just we've got to infuse some positivity into our civic process here and that's my big focus and my big inspiration moving forward Wonderful. have you seen how my main worry is that people feel like they've got, they, they're still checked out mm. and they feel so intimidated by the political process. They're not, you know, people aren't keeping up with the presidential races Mm-mm. very much right now. I'm a political junkie, Me too. but when I, <laughs> when I'm engaging with other people, cause I'm always testing the water, you know, mm-hmm. I'm always asking my Lyft driver, what's going on in your head, you know, who are you thinking about? And there are so many barriers to people being involved in the process. Yeah, I think that voter suppression in Memphis is, loud and clear what are some ideas that you have moving forward how can we be better about this it's interesting because the first thing that i thought about this morning one of the first things when i woke up was where are all the organizations in pushing voter turnout Mm -hmm. and you know recognizing that people do what they can um you know we're the most philanthropic city but that just is because we have saint jude and labonner here right so the majority of our funding goes directly to those institutions. Um, but we have a lot of nonprofits that are trying to piece together support for people, um, including a lot that dabble in voter engagement. One thing that we've done to silence the ability of nonprofits to organize voters is we scare people. We say, well, you can't do this because you're going to risk your status. You know, you're going to lose your funding. Meanwhile, <laughs> you know, well, the white churches, you right. can get on the pulpit and say whatever you <laughs> want say whatever and, you and want. not pay taxes. Yes. Right. But it's the, a great deal. the orgs that are really doing um, and can really reach the people who need to like hear from, you know, um, people running for office or just be a part of the process, the people who can change the process are so afraid of that, like loss because they're like, hey, we're feeding families or we're getting, you know, period supplies or, you know, we're getting school supplies mm-hmm. and we've got to do that work. And I can't risk that work. And you become scared to give. You become afraid. As much as you have to give, you get scared to give that one inch. And that one inch, Because yeah. that can lead to a mile and then suddenly you're wrapped up in all and this other stuff. I hear nonprofits say to me all the time, like, yeah, I'm just, I want to do more. I'm just afraid. And you can't. Of course, if I and I don't want to be a bully and be like, don't be afraid. That's BS, you yeah. know, <laughs> um, because, again, privilege. I'm not the one whose work is at risk. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you to know, me, to me, it seems like especially in the era of Trump and the backlash that we've experienced, the cultural backlash is that the, all these diverse parties need to come together mm-hmm. instead of, you know, fighting over little bitty mm-hmm. things. Coalition yeah. building is yeah, we, it's, it's a prime right now. now. It's. I mean, you know, it's the separation of poor black and poor white people is as old as the formation of this country. And it has persisted because if we ever wake up and realize that we have the same shit going on 
<laughs> right. right. You know, the this entire country would topple. Mm-hmm. And so anarchy was created coming out of, you know, um, when slavery first existed, you know, there were indentured white people as well who technically were slaves, you know. Now we call them indentured. There's a great video out about this. I think now this did it, but it talks about how Originally, you know, poor white people and slaves, right? White people brought here either for crimes they committed in England or because they were a part of the working class in England were doing the same work. And then they elevated those white people just a little bit because of a few of the like riots that took place, the uprisings and, and the offset, black and white people were power. working together. Right. And so now, hey. I've got a hundred million acres. I'm gonna give Moth one acre, and he's still gonna be poor and not have shit. But he's not a slave. <laughs> and then <laughs> you now look down on me because back to these nonprofits, you're gonna protect your one acre because mm-hmm. you've never had anything, mm-hmm. and you gotta protect your one acre. Which now and that of era, of course, you're gonna hold your ground at that point. Yeah. Ugh. And I say pitted against each yeah. other. <laughs> <laughs> and now that like. Structure. But one moment. Yeah, what is that Gil, noise? are you picking up that loud drill sound? <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, good to know. You know, I'm always afraid of alien invasions. <laughs> too late. I feel safe Excuse here. me, too late. <laughs> I feel safe here and I don't want to get, I don't want anybody encroaching on my territory. <laughs> the OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast. I'm Josh Spickler. I'm the host of The Permanent Record here on the OAM Network. We're a podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can all work together to make it better for everyone. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and right here on the OAMnetwork.com. Two things I would like to discuss about Memphis. I lived here 40 years ago. The one thing that I have seen, when I lived here the first time, Beale Street was all boarded up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a mess. So I have seen the recovery. There's lots of new buildings and stuff going on, but the streets in the city are trashed. Yeah. And is there no money for that? Is there, is that cause it's all going to the police? Is that <laughs> our infrastructure is kind of crumbling? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Mayor Strickland would have you believe that he's increased pavement funding four times since he was elected. He kicked off his campaign this year by starting with, a small group of all white men um, in the top of of Clark Tower. And he said, I love the smell of asphalt. Memphis has momentum. And what they've done in this last year since he's, you know, kicked his campaign back off is they've paved Highland a bit and they've paved Walnut Grove again and they paved Poplar. And, you know, they've, you know, thrown some really pretty dark black you know, asphalt down in the parts of town where it matters and drawn some lines and even in some parts of town where it doesn't matter so that like people like me will shut up. So that they've checked the box so that the token is taken care of. But we still have not, you know, had any type of real assessment of need that would repair the streets. I just, my tire three weeks ago went flat and I took it to the shop they pulled a tire out, filled it back up, $25, and went on my way. Yesterday, two more tire nails in the same tire, another $25. I go to a really good shop, 
locally owned. And so they take care of it, you know. But why do I have three nails in my tire in two weeks? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and t- tire karma in Memphis is and, we, we ain't got any. We don't have any. And so all of that to say that, you know, there are people who've never smelled asphalt, you know. So like just how elitist. I love the smell of asphalt. Mm-hmm. Um but there is funding for it. What I want to do, not just bashing Jim Strickland, what I would like to do <laughs> is. Um, but there's accountability. And then, yeah. We, you know, people need to be accountable. <laughs> they do need mm-hmm. to be accountable. But I'd like to have um, what is known as participatory budgeting. And so what we would do there is um, first you take that $750 million, you get everybody together in a few different town halls. Folks get a chance to you know, play with post-it notes and say how they want to chop up the pie. And then you start to see the budget evolve into one that the people actually own and can recognize. That's reflective. Also how you get people more involved in the process, Mm -hmm. right? People don't vote because when they vote, they never figure, find out what those folks do. We don't come back to the community we collectively, I do, uh, but you know, <laughs> I was about to say, I've seen you yeah. out and about, you're talking to people. <laughs> politicians don't come back to the community. They don't share updates. You know, they get elected and they don't come back for two or four years, depending on when their reelection is. So that's first, taking the budget to the community and letting people say like, no, I don't want 70% of the budget to go to firing policing. You know, that needs to be 50 because we need more money to do X, Y, and Z. And, and used better and, and smarter better for everybody and smarter, right and yeah. then the other the other thing that i want to do is what is called a equity budget for our public works um i picked it up in san antonio san antonio is about like us except they're 70 percent latinx and so um but same poverty you know same displacement you know same it's a majority <laughs> minority city but ruled by a very wealthy white mm-hmm. you know class of people, even though the majority of the city is people of color. And so um, what they started was a equity budget and they ranked the streets of San Antonio by need, right? These are the repair projects by need. These are the Hell paving yes. projects by need. So which, which ones are screaming? <laughs> which ones are just talking to us? Right. And which ones are whispering right now? And that's mm-hmm. how they ranked, you know, this is the order we should go instead of, Walnut Grove always, you know, Mm -hmm. four times a year gets fresh pavement, you know. And so then in order to get city council on board, what they did, and I talked to city council members about it, San Antonio city council members, what they did was, you know, you get a get out of jail free card. So like if your district is East Memphis and you're like, yeah, you got Walnut Grove all the way at like number 85, I need that bumped up to five. Mm -hmm. Like so you get one. Right. Okay. You for know. like when you when you really need it, when <laughs> something really is going it. on. Like, yeah. But for the most part, it's in based by need, and every city council person gets input into moving like at least one passion project or one. You know, I love that the flexibility has been built into this. Yeah. Because that's you're you're just going to encounter that. I mean, you yeah. know, folks were like, no one will ever let you do that, and I'm like, why not? Yeah, they why not? Actually, would because. <laughs> I think one of the questions has been, if I get elected, how does what is considered a radical mayor work with the city council? But my election would speak so deeply to the city council that that's, hey, y'all need to get on this train. The people just spoke, you know what I mean? Like, And I think you'd see actually... City council shift a bit to, you know, right now they're, you know, answering to 
uh, the developers and big money. They're not answering to the people by any means. And, and it's so, shown. Yeah, we you can shift, look at Midtown. Yeah, we shift that. I mean, Midtown's about to open $1,400 units. Single bedroom. <laughs> the citizen? Yeah. When I moved here, I paid $350 for an apartment on Jefferson Avenue. <laughs> yep. Yep. I couldn't afford to live in Midtown now. That's why I'm an East Memphis mom <laughs> these days. Uh, I live in Berkeley. The other thing that I would like to address, oh, I like to dress all kinds of things. <laughs> I like to dress up too. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Memphis and their homeless situation. Yeah. I think, all right, well, we're queer, right? I understand. And we have the metamorphosis project right now. But if you're queer in Memphis and you're homeless, they don't want you. Right. Yeah. It's, it's how, extremely dangerous. Do we, you know, I, I have nothing more to throw at that. It's just, it's, it's an observation. Right. You know, I come from California and there's, you know, like LA, there's what, 42,000 homeless people here mm. or not there. We have lots of homeless people here. And it's like, what's going on? I mean, right. I know this is a poor city. I know that. Right. And we want to talk about privilege blindness. Yeah. It, my heart hurts so much for the people who struggle on the streets here in Memphis, because I mean, Memphis, you come here for the culture, you come here for the good, the, the good rent, the property value, the friendships, you don't come for the weather, right? right? Our homeless population is so vulnerable and the hot, hot summer heat. I have seen how sick people look and how hard it is to just be in the city and yeah. stand on our ground yeah. when you don't have that support system. Yeah. And I see every winter when it gets our coldest night, we know yep. that we've lost somebody. Yep. We know we lose somebody on those cold nights. Absolutely. And we can do better. We just, a lot of people don't quite know how yet, I think. And we only get outraged when we do lose somebody and it's public. And it's not always public, you know? Oh, I'm sure it's not. Very often, I mean, the most public one was the lady who, you know, we lost in front of City Hall. And of course, that's sensational. But like you said, I mean, so I think, you know, Back to the importance of there being an advocate in office. I'll never forget A.C. Wharton on one of the coldest nights during his term going out in like a snowstorm and getting people like saying, like, please come with me, you know. And for all of, you know, the debate about A.C.'s time in office, that's one thing that always stood with me. Whether it was, you know, some people said it was for cameras, but all I remember seeing is it was 9 p.m. and this man was out there like, no, hey, I'm the mayor. Will you please get up and come with me? I'm going to get you to a warm, safe place tonight. Because what was happening was they were saying they tried. You know, police were like, we went around and we tapped everybody. And they're not always going to, you know, people aren't going to feel safe going with the police. They don't want to end up in jail, you know, um, and just to see him out there doing that. I wish I had the footage, but, <laughs> you know, was major. And, and I don't think I've ever seen that again. I know I haven't ever seen that again, um, because when the lady died outside of City Hall, you know, the blame was placed everywhere except for we're not doing enough. All that should have been said is this shows we're not doing enough and we need to do more. Our homeless problem in Memphis, and I hate to say problem because the homeless people are not the problem. It is our structures that are the problem. But our situation is, one, we are unaware of the real numbers. Um, you know, we say that there's 2,200 people every night who are homeless, and that's not the right number. That's, un that's an underestimate. It's an underestimation because we don't count the people who are sleeping on somebody's couch, so sleeping in a car. 
staying at an extended stay. You know, our schools have even had to shift their services. They pick up kids at, you know, extended stay now. Um, you know, that we've normalized school buses pulling up to hotels to pick up a bunch of kids to take them to school. And, you know, and then even as you all just mentioned, the work that Out Memphis does, um, you know, I first became aware of that about three, four years ago, that Out Memphis is counting every year um, the number of LGBTQ youth who are homeless. And those numbers aren't even like... The city hasn't even adopted supporting that work, right? And so, excuse me, um, <clears throat> with all of that to say, you know, for me, we have private shelters that are religiously based that do not create safe spaces. Um, they do not create safe spaces for people's gender, for people's sexual expression, um, an identity or anything. And, you know, our current shelter, $7 a day is hard to come by if is, your life is, you know. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And and so, you know, federal regulations, you know, imagine being um, a young boy. And if you're over the age of 12, you can't be in a shelter with your mother because you are now by federal definition Man. you know able to be a sexual predator and then you but you can't go with your father if you have a father so we, one we split up families and then two because we have no family housing we have little family we have some private family housing shout out to dorothy day house but um so then if you have to go to a shelter on your own or with your father you're too young at 12, 13 to be in a men's shelter because you're not the predator. You'll be the one preyed on. So they don't want you in there. Right. And so boys are being lost from families when the families face homelessness. So that's like, and then especially like in poor black families, that's something that's like really like the splitting of the family. So then these young men end up um, on someone's couch. Right. Or, you know, um, again, in, introduced to street life in numerous ways and the trauma that comes from that, this is how we're losing so much of our youth. Um, and then LGBTQ youth, there's a large number of youth who are put out of their homes every day because we are in the middle of the Bible Belt. And they are gone. And they are fast. gone. Yeah. They are gone. Whether we lose them in this plane of existence or they realize that the climate here is so dangerous. Yeah. That they run away screaming right. from us, so from we, our city. We lose them from Memphis, or if they stay here, um, you know, the impact on their lives, on their mental health, you know, um, high rates of drug addiction, high rates of STD infection. And then you couple that with the fact we have the largest number of new HIV infection rates in the state. Yeah. Lisa and I do a lot of work with Friends for Life and yeah. Friends for Life. I mean, Diane, John Michael, Ginger. Yeah. I saw your Facebook video where you were talking with to lovely, lovely Ginger. Yeah. And that fight is so close to my heart because the stigma here in the South runs so deep. And that is what's contributing to mm -hmm. our, our high, high rates. It's because not only are we not talking about it, we haven't been able to get together. That's why I have been such a, so blessed to be included right. in the work that Friends for Life and Choices does. 
because I know that that work is not getting done Mm -hmm. anywhere else in Memphis right now. And we need it desperately. I was at Hope House a few weeks ago, um, which is those free. sweet, those yeah. wonderful children. Yeah. And, and, you know, they provide free daycare services to children who either have HIV or their parents do. And they were telling me the number of kids that they can't, you know, like they can't put on Facebook or they can't put in their promotional material because the parents aren't out. And their right. family doesn't know, so you know, da- it's so dangerous and how dangerous it is. Um, that stigma and it's the stigma right. that is the most dangerous because the stigma is like dynamite yeah. that can blow families apart. I saw on my friend's uh, Facebook and on his Instagram this morning um, that the guy from Queer Eye just yes. announced his status. Sweet Jonathan. Yeah. yeah. And I'm so and proud of him for said. doing that. All right, so I'm setting you up, Tammy. So what do you got against gay people? (laughs) (laughs) Is it our shoes? (laughs) I am jealous of your style. (laughs) Especially that one. (laughs) I just, I call this shirt my gingham nightmare. Oh gosh, it's it's brown, orange, pink, powder, blue, and light yellow. Oh gosh. It's it's frightening and that's why I like it. It wakes me up in the morning. Well, as you just allowed me to explain, like, my work over the last four years has evolved to a place where I never would have expected. As a world, I didn't even know existed. Um, Language that I have about HIV, about, you know, homeless, you know, LGBTQ youth, about just LGBTQ challenges in general, and then the joy of the LGBTQ community, one of the greatest days in my life as a politician was wearing a pink wig and, you know, riding in a convertible down Bill Street and, yes. you know, <laughs> in pride last year. And, um, you know, so, yeah, some tweets came out that um, were written by me in the past. And I've evolved from a lot of that, you know, from all of that. I think that there were some where I grapple with you know, sexual fluidity and gender expression, which is not a world that I grew up in. But also there was some inward, you know, struggle because as a plus sized woman, I often, you know, will get people being like, are you a lesbian? Just because, hey, like you can't be like sexually uh, attractive to men. (laughs) Right. So, you know, that's how I'm going to put you down. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always had very close relationships with my friends who are women (laughs) and, you know, people thinking like, oh, I always see her with other women and never with other guys because I'm not dragging like, you know, Tom, Dick and Harry into every Instagram post and like, this is who I'm sleeping with this week. (laughs) (laughs) So. (laughs) And that's not the same person from last week. What? No. (laughs) But if you listen to the media, I am promiscuous. I'm an alcoholic. I hate gay people. I (laughs) want to kill white babies. And, you know, we could just go on and on. That's why you're on the show, Tammy. (laughs) I'm sorry. Do you dance around fires Uh, in the forest with large broomsticks as well? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no. And so first, and I, said this to you all off the record but you know reading those things hurts right um you talked about your own coming out story i have very close friends who have shared their own journey coming out 
There's a movie on Netflix right now with like Angela Bassett and a few other people, but it's like a mom story. And they go to New York because their sons forget to call them for Mother's Day. And they like reclaim their own lives. I can't remember it, but it was a cute little like Sunday afternoon watch. But one of the mother's sons is a gay man and she opens the door to his apartment and, you know, like he has a whole life. Mm-hmm. And he's never said to her, mom, I'm gay. And so she's oh, crying. So and she's like, <laughs> she said, well, I knew. Why didn't you tell me? He said, well, if you knew, why did I have to tell you? And she said, you told your dad. He said, because he didn't know. And he said, why do I have to come out? If I were straight, would I, you have wanted to have a conversation with me at 18? Mom, I like women. And she said, no, that's ridiculous. He goes, exactly. And so this is ridiculous. And I, even in watching that two months ago, like that pushed my understanding of, you know, National Coming Out Day. We actually celebrate those things now. And it's a celebration of a very painful, I can't imagine, like ever having had to have a conversation with my parents at 16, 17, 18 about anything with sexuality. I'm mad that my dad has had to read Jack, Ginger, and Drunk Sex over and over again, one one of the most viral tweets that the media put out, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I have to be like, hey, dad. So I can't imagine ever having to talk to my parents about my sexual identity. And it's not fair that we require people to disclose to us. And that is something uh, that I grew, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, that's something that I grew to understand. I've watched the debates, Right. Why do you have to disclose to your loved ones, right, mm-hmm. what your sexual identity is? And I'm not saying that to pander. I'm not saying that, like, oh, I'm so incredibly woke. I learned it through a Netflix movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, where, where many things live, where much knowledge lives. But, I mean, the biggest thing is that, first, I just want to share that I did not out a teacher. I did not uh, get her fired. Um, oh, um, can we, may we back up and... Yeah. and- out, I, I hate to yeah, yeah, keep yeah. our fingers in the wound, yeah. but can we outline what the surrounding right. situation is and then you know, so the, what the reality is? The tweet <clears throat> says that time, I don't remember it word for word, but it's something like the tweet says something like that time when my entire class made their mission to out a teacher mm-hmm. and she left before the end of the year, hashtag mean girls. Yeah. Or she was gone before the end of the year, hashtag mean girls. So I think that the hashtag mean girls made some people think I was being flippant or like laughing about it. It was a part of a thread on a longer conversation about being black in a prep school. Mm-hmm. Um, I Like I said, to, to social media, like moth in the flame. So from the time I was one of the first people on Twitter, I'm probably like number one, 100,000, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I'm in the hundred thousand of the yeah. users. Right. Like, and I was like, thought it was a big deal that I could invite other people, <laughs> you yeah. know, back when you had to get invited to be able to get an account. Um, well, you've been tweeting a long time. I've been tweeting. A, yeah. And, and Twitter is hard to clean. Like, because I, I, I stay nervous about social media all the time. Twitter <laughs> is so hard to clean up. Yeah. <laughs> like, so people have asked, why didn't you clean your Twitter? I did. <laughs> You know, I did three years ago. Mm -hmm. Three years ago, I spent a week watching Netflix, drinking wine, just deleting bulk tweets. And you get to a point where you can't scroll anymore. Mm -hmm. And it says, like, that's the end of your tweets. What happened was this is a very coordinated attack on us, on my campaign. 
they search the terms and Mm -hmm. you know we've seen the printouts of the searches because that's what they sent to the media the oamnetwork.com power to the podcast have an idea for a podcast or a live talk show call 901-800-7608 or email info at the oamnetwork.com today and pitch your show when this came out, I was like, Jim's got a millennial in his, <laughs> in his cabinet somewhere. Jim's got a million dollars. <laughs> so um, it's a very coordinated, uh, very strong attack because the base was shifting because of my message of inclusiveness. Yeah. So if you pulled out in the fact that I am inclusive, then you get people again back to the apathy. People give up. Um, and they don't come back. And so what I've been doing this week. So so back to the tweet. So I was having a conversation, which was a hashtag conversation. And the hashtag was, you know, black prep chat. Mm-hmm. And my own time in prep school uh, is one that shaped me, gave me a lot of opportunities and was also traumatic as a black girl in an all girls school class of 40. And I was one of very few black girls in my school. And and so um, that question that was asked was share a time or, you know, how did you come to see gender expression in your institution? And that was my answer. Well, one of my biggest memories about how we responded to, quote unquote, what was different mm-hmm. was that. Because that's the language that surrounds it. Like, right. It's especially a few years ago now. Now it's I would change, never have said really we outed her, um, you know, so the reality is that the teacher stayed through the end of the mm-hmm. year. She did leave our school. Um, but my now understanding is she went on to uh, be a different type of profession because, she, you know, what we did show her, she didn't want to teach a bunch of bratty ass students <laughs> um, and that her sexuality was never really a part of any of that. Mm-hmm. Um and there were a lot of things about this educator. She was not from Memphis. She was young, so we tried her every day. You know, there, and I do still believe what I said, what I was trying to get to in that tweet is that what we hopped on the most, mm-hmm. right? What made us try her the most was that she entered into a world. We, I mean, Clueless had just come out, y'all. Like mm-hmm. she had entered into a world of 90s. You know, we were watching, I don't want to miss a thing, you know, and, you know, long hair flipping all around. And that's what a, what's what a girl was. That's mm-hmm. what a woman was. And, you know, all our teachers were women who had wedding rings and, and children. And didn't have language. And we didn't have language vocabulary. or understanding. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you're new and you're different. And we're going to push and we're going to be jerks. And we were assholes. It wasn't like we sat in the bathroom and had a meeting like we're going to out her. It was not that mean spirited. Um, My language in explaining it was, you know, I uh, what I will say is my language in tweeting about it was casual. Mm -hmm. Like I casually used outed, Mm -hmm. uh, made it our mission to out her. We did make it our mission to make her life a living hell every day because of a lot of, kids. yeah, because we're kids. Uh, we probably yeah. made everybody's life a living hell every day. And I think yeah. that, you know. That's kind of what teenagers yeah. are, are good for. And <laughs> what's so amazing about them? Like, I see the teenage activists across the country yeah. and I'm like, oh my gosh, I am a big proponent for lowering the voting age. Yeah. I know not everyone agrees on that. But like, I think that these kids are such an important, powerful yeah. part of our 
our political process moving forward and we need their voices with us because they have got the time, the activation energy and the power Absolutely. to really to lead us, <clears throat> to help lead us. But anyway, yeah, not so, to take you away. No, so, no, no. I mean, prep school. So all of that, um, <clears throat> you know, it's funny when I talked to my dad about everything that was happening, you know, he was like, you know, I knew you were an alcoholic, uh, <laughs> but you didn't know how to teach her, did you? Like he really wanted oh. to get clear. Like <laughs> Dad, I knew Dad this. Like, He's hmm. like, this is the one thing that doesn't fit. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you're crazy. <laughs> like the other stuff, you know, I'm like, there she goes. Smart ass mouth, mm. you know, dumb, you know, thinking things are funny that aren't funny, you know, tweeting about drinking in my twenties. Like, I mean, I used to drunk down with my dad when I was a kid, you know, in my twenties, <laughs> like, dad, I hope you're proud of me. And he'd be like, I'm not right now. I had a conversation or two that was warranted by the way, but you know, I get it about the whole, like, you don't think the same as you did 10, 15. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're made up of different cells. I didn't come out to later in life and my whole, concept of the world has changed dramatically right so you know i mean look who my business partner is. <laughs> I know. lisa and i joke a lot she's like i can't believe that i'm in league with a drag queen yeah. <laughs> but i think i think we're in pretty good company with each yeah, other we, we do all right but we've both been through lots of transformations oh yes you know, you know people thought i was crazy to move to the south as a transgender right. person and this city has just put its arms around me right you know and I know that doesn't happen for everybody, but no, but I hear you. And, uh, you know, but we want that experience. You know, Lisa and I have had the privilege of seeing how beautiful and how kind Memphis has been to us. Mm -hmm. Who are two, you know, outsider art, strange performers in this world. You know, right. we both wear a lot of hats and I feel so lucky, so profoundly lucky to have been loved and embraced in the way that I am, but it's not lost on me. That I am, had I been a weird black girl starting to try to do drag in 2016, how much harder it would have been, how I would not have gotten the platform to speak the way that I have been given, and that that is never lost on me. Yeah. And that ain't lost on you either. Right. I have seen the way that you speak. I have seen the way that you use your platform. You are, you are so powerful when you speak, Tammy. Thank you. And you're, you, you're a badass. You, <laughs> you are. You inspire me so much. I text my mom last week. I was like, I might run for city council one you day. <laughs> and I was like, okay, wait, wait, wait. okay. I, <laughs> I, I, I like eating corn dogs on stage while listening to pop music. <laughs> I'd like to address something else, and I don't mean to hurt your feelings or whatever, but that Memphis magazine cover. Yeah, that was bullshit. Yeah. Um, no, my feelings aren't hurt by you bringing it up. So thank you. Um, I mean, that's just the month I've had, you know, I went into this race. Everybody was like, you shouldn't do this right now. He's got a million dollars. You know, he's going to hang you out to dry. And too, I was like, too hard. Quit now. We got to we got to do this. If we don't get in this race, who's going to bring these issues up? You know, honestly, who the mayor nor the former mayor talk about LGBTQ issues. The mayor nor the f former mayor talk about women's issues. They barely even talk about Black issues, they definitely don't talk about immigration issues. They don't talk about poor issues. They're just like, hey, trust us, we do a good job, you know? And so- I'm not trusting men anymore just because they say, <laughs> hey, trust me. Hey, trust me. I mean, so I got in the race to be able to lay out a platform of like what the city could look like if we were inclusive, right? And how we could be a, 
a city that develops and has crosstowns while also mm-hmm. while <laughs> actually, everybody else lifts up at the same time. <laughs> right. And so um, the character started, uh, it, it's only, it hasn't been a month. So there's the character and then, you know, uh, it gets national attention that pictures everywhere um, and then about not even a week after the character happens, I think Huffington Post puts out a beautiful article in support exploring, you know, the dynamics of the race. Then the first tweet hits, uh, you know, accusing me of hating pets and I've had pets my entire life. Um, <laughs> I know now, like th- these, it just goes to show like yeah. mountain, mountains can be made out of molehills. Yeah. I mean, all of this, I thank you so much for being transparent with us. And I know that that is what your spirit is like. You have addressed this like immediately. And I am so proud of you for that. Thank you. And that is the model that everybody needs to use. (laughs) Everyone in politics should be up front and immediate when this type of thing happens. When the media was chased. So like, you know, and then the next two weeks have just been tweet, 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 tweet. And even this weekend, they're still trying to make it, you know, mm-hmm. you know, part of the news. Uh, even the profiles going into election day, they feel the need to be like, and these tweets, you know, the Memphis Flyer didn't shout out to them. Um, but in three month, in three weeks, I've gone from being attacked and you know the 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 face of a very ugly, sexist, racist imagery. Um, to being the villain. Mm-hmm. And even in, like I said, in the midst of becoming the villain, you know, somebody uh, took a Sharpie to one of my, you know, signs with my face on it, blacked out my eyes and my teeth and wrote the N word and called me a bitch, you know, it's, you know, um, and that doesn't get pressed because my tweets, you know, yeah. and what I haven't said is that, I hate that anyone's in a position where their support has to be qualified now. You know, I support Tammy in spite of, I support Tammy because, and I just want to tell y'all that it's just major to be here with you today, uh, which is why I was a little emotional when I sat down because we don't do this. We don't forgive. We don't recognize the whole person, I think, you know, and so one, thank you both. Um, and I'm sorry (laughs) I'm sorry to people who are still hurt, who will continue to be hurt, to people who haven't even seen it yet. And now this is going to bring up like, you know, fresh wounds. Um, But I am happy that what has happened is a broader conversation, you know, about one, you know, one thing that has this has exposed is like the fault line of race within the LGBTQ community. LGBTQ community is not my community. Especially in Memphis. Especially in Memphis. And so, like, I won't speak to that broadly, but, you know, I I think that both communities have a lot of conversations to have. One thing that I'm committed to, um, you know, especially in 2020 is whatever, whether I'm mayor or commissioner, is that I'm going to have these conversations with people. Um because we have to. And people think we talk too much. We don't talk enough. Mm-hmm. Um, because it makes people uncomfortable. It makes people uncomfortable. Um, Why? Because there are more questions than answers right now. more questions than answers. But yeah. That's because we're just, we've just scraped the tip of the iceberg <clears throat> with this. There's an article that came out in CNN yesterday. And it talked about um, cancel culture. And I mm-hmm. read it. And it said every celebrity alive has been hit by cancel culture 
if there's a celebrity that you know, they something has been brought up from their past, right? <laughs> something has been brought up from their past to make you, and, and we're so quick to be like, oh, now I don't like John Wick. And it's like, well, John Wick's a movie character, you know? <laughs> but, you know, or I don't like Keanu Reeves, you know? And it's like, come on, like the guy gives half his salary to, you know, peace. Or Oh, and, we, we've and, been trying to cancel RuPaul for three years <laughs> yeah. now. Like she, she made her, her, you know, next million dollars. And we were like, too much, darling, too, too much, much. which is ridiculous. And, and so, you know, I'm not a celebrity, but like on the local, but you're a public figure, I'm a public figure. And so like, you know, seeing that and, and then also you learn by getting kicked in the butt. Right. So for me, I've been a part of cancel culture. Oh no, I'm not dealing with him. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'll, I'll never wear that again. Oh, easily. You know, I, I cancel girls <laughs> all over town. I, I, I cancel people. I cancel, like, I'll never eat there again, mm-hmm. you know? And so this has forced me to even explore how I show up in that way. I mean, there's some things like, uh, yeah, I'm just. We but, have to have healthy boundaries. Yeah, we do have to have boundaries. But I do also think that, like, it's teaching me because, like, when Justin Trudeau happened, Within oh my, the week, last week of yeah. my own BS. What, right? what so a like, weird wagon wheel. <laughs> I'm going through my own stuff and then this happens and I'm like, yo, last week I would have been like, Justin's canceled. And now I'm like, well, you know, he's been a really positive PM and he's been an ally. <laughs> <laughs> like, like <laughs> like, it's, it's constantly moving. It's, we are playing high speed flaming ping pong in culture. All day, every day. <laughs> what I do hate to say, but what is true is there's a lesson to be learned from the other side because conservatives and the people who have a bunch of hate, <laughs> not all conservatives have hate, but like some of the hate, more hateful groups, they forgive flaws so easily. Mm-hmm. You know, clearly our president like can say whatever he wants and people are like, He's my, that's my president. I'm oh going hard for him. God telling, bless telling America. Telling it like it is. Telling it like it is. And we have a purity test, which is going to break up any progress we're able to make apart because there'll be no leaders. There'll just be a bunch of damaged people. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to make all of our leaders damaged goods, where are we going to get? Yeah. Yeah. We have to. I just think that empathy, I mean, empathy is a word that's been floating around in kind of woo-woo, Brene Brown, yeah. crystal culture for a few years now. But empathy and vulnerability, this is where we as citizens see the daylight. Like, I, the first time that I'd really encountered Mayor Strickland was at the vigil for the Pulse nightclub shooting. That was when we were, all came together right. and, and wept together. And I walked away from that, and this is my perspective, that I was like, that man didn't see any of us. He didn't see any of us. He doesn't understand how far back this goes and how much this hurts and how much fear that brought to us. And I started doing drag that week and performing that week. My first show was a Pulse nightclub um, benefit show because I didn't know what else to do. I was like, we're not going to get healing from anywhere else right. on this matter. I was smiling when you said that because I was there. Um, I'd organized a and group thank, of. Thank you for being there. Absolutely. Um, 
we I I worked you know I was working with Teach for America and I organized a safe space for our our student for our you know incoming teachers. We were in the middle of summer training for them, and then got alums to provide uh, transportation from University of Memphis where they were staying to come to the vigil, and so we were all there. And that's uh, I had I I wasn't gunning for the mayor seat at the time, you know. But I remember standing there, and when he got up there, I was like, "Somebody get this clown off," you know. <laughs> and I mean, again, Athena, my uh, campaign manager, is probably like Tammy. <laughs> but, but I just remember when he got up there, and like you know, we're I'm standing in the crowd, and the pain, right? And so I've already like been in like close rooms with people who are like weeping and you know watching everything that was happening and feeling the pain and knowing that I'm a visitor to that space you know I just think there was a different way to show up not just like this is a tragedy thank you to our police you know I remember parking and seeing the police officers all around and thinking like y'all aren't actually like this isn't making people feel better you know because you're not felt like a fish tank you're not weeping with them you know, um, and there's a way to provide safety and also like participate. And, um, you know, I mean, just showing up in that moment, you know, I remember being like, I'm not going to speak. I just want to be here. And I did see that same thing. And I think that's the way that's that's been one of the things that has led me on this path towards challenging him is because I've never seen empathy for any community. Um, and Pulse was such a big eye opener. You say that you went into, you know, <laughs> I graduated drag. from art school yeah. and then Pulse happened. And I was like, I guess I'm going to be a drag queen. And for me, that's how I can heal. Coming out of that, I said, we have to make LGBTQ, you know, allyship a part of our language. It can't just be black issues are first and LGBTQ issues are second because, because it's the, all the intersection. Yeah. It's so huge. And the people who were killed were mostly black and brown. And, you know, then you start to get into, like, you know, the number of trans people who are killed every year. The majority of them are black trans women. How can we say that's not an issue for black people? Again, back to blank matters. If I'm going to say black lives matter, that has to be all black lives. Right. com. Power to the podcast. Hey, y'all, this is Chris Milam, host of The Mix. It's an hour-long conversation with fellow artists and producers where I ask one simple question. What songs mean the most to you? You can listen on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or right here on the OAM Network. All right, let's go down this rabbit hole. I usually keep my mouth shut, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down this one. It appears to me the black community has the hardest time with the LGBT community. I mean, I get, you know, sometimes I'm walking around this town and I look like they just saw a ghost, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I've had some amazing things, but it's, I think that's one of the reasons like black trans women are so still persecuted so much and so easily written off is because they're not getting the support of their community. Right. And there's diffusion in the LGBT community as well. Yeah. It, we have segregation at oh, yeah. all levels. I, I, I played in, uh, I don't even want to say, it. I was in a sports type of thing in this town a few years ago, and I was shocked when I heard some of the stuff coming out of gay men's mouths, white gay men's mouths. Mm-hmm. Like, white gay spaces are not like, always safe 
for everyone. Oftentimes, they are very uncomfortable for anyone who is not a white gay man who expresses themselves as such. Oh, man, I used to get abuse when going to clubs when I was first coming out. So we've got things to reckon with in our own community. I think all the time about Pose, if you've seen Pose. Yeah. There's a scene where Blanca decides that she wants to celebrate and she goes to a nicer gay bar that's built. It's all gay, you know, upper twenties, young gentlemen in there. And they toss her out because this was the eighties and we're not even talking like trans issues were, we were still developing the, the language, you know, that had just began to really gain some traction just in academic papers and right. things like that. So I was so proud of that show. And I think of that scene every day. I think of that scene every time that I walk into a bar or a club. And I think there are power systems here that I am going to do my very best to be aware of. And I know that there are things that I am blinded to. And when I am made aware of that, it is implicitly my job to address that and fix that within myself. Because I'm not going to be blinded to my brothers and sisters. And I'll just say, you know, when you mention like the black community and LGBT, of course, you know, I think that there is definitely a struggle in the black community. Um, we have a very patriarchal, very Christian culture, and we don't even really go to church that much anymore, but it's embedded in us. Um, but the own oppression of ourselves, it's kind of like oppression Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. So like we can't deal with LGBTQ issues because we're still trying to deal with getting on solid footing as black people. Gotcha. You know, I've heard people in, in, in reading a lot like LGBTQ, you know, identity makes it harder, especially like with gay black men who say, I'm not going to make it harder for myself by being out. I'm already a black man. I'm not going to make it harder for myself by getting married. I'm a black man, you know? Um, And so I think that that's where that comes from. If you're not whole completely, how do you embrace otherness? Right. Which is not othering LGBTQ, but within that within our community, and, you know, I think also there's always this fight for masculinity within the black community because we feel like masculinity was stolen from us with slavery. Mm. Families were destroyed, right? We weren't allowed to get married. Black men were taken away from black women. Um, you know, families were separated. And then often black men were used for their sexuality to, you know, to serve more slaves mm-hmm. um you know so that like over sexualized mentality that you know hyper masculinity while also um taking away the freedom of that masculinity from black men and so in doing that you know then you've got i don't even know what the identity of really black masculinity is because i'm trying to get something back that i've never even understood and so i think that you know, and then with black women, right? I don't want to over, uh, you know, I don't want to further oppress black men, right? And 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 so like it's just such a complex. We've not healed from the trauma of slavery while it started four hundred years ago. My great grandmother was born in nineteen ten, and her parents were slaves, right? So think about my great great grandparents were the end of slavery. And that's a very close, like, I knew my great-grandmother. I sat in her lap. I braided her hair, like, you know. So, like, think about the fact that, so we haven't healed because 
I used to say that I was the first generation of black people born free because my parents were born into segregation and their parents were born into even deeper segregation and their parents were born into, you know, the end of slavery and, you know, but my parents were in their 20s when schools were able to be integrated. My mom was arrested at University of Memphis, even though she could go there. They didn't let black students stay on campus after a certain time. They didn't let them take certain classes. They didn't let them hang out at the UC. That's my mother, right? So my generation is the first generation born with systemic freedom, but we're also born into mass incarceration. We're born into the aftermath of the war on drugs. So really the generation of free black people has yet to be born. And so like the deeper issues that white people have had the privilege, right, you know, fighting for gay marriage was a privilege for and led by white LGBTQ people because you had so much more freedom to even mm-hmm. lead that fight. There's more cultural mobility. Right. Yeah. And the muscular and proper exercise of privilege is something I don't, honey, I don't have any answers, <laughs> but I am trying so hard to wrap, wrap my squirrel brain around it is these are things that are going to be so important in our zeitgeist as a culture over the next 100 years. Mm -hmm. I mean. And and so I'm not saying when that hurt happens, you please feel it, right? right. We have to, the only way we're going to get better is when you say like, hey, black community, I'm a person. Like, don't look at me crazy, you Mm -hmm. know, because we shouldn't. And we've got to raise our kids better, you know. Um, But also just realize the history that we're carrying in our blood is one where we haven't had the freedom to be allies. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're not even allies to ourselves. Right. You you scold me. (laughs) (laughs) Scorching, scorching high. Oh, damn. Okay. Tammy, I think that the best way that we can finish this is, will you tell us about your vision for Memphis? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which is a loaded question. A loaded, I know. I know. I'm like today. Top, top, <laughs> remember, top, top of the heart. Top of the heart. What's on the top of the heart today? I think my vision for Memphis today is a city where these conversations are public. We should be having, you know, even as I was just talking to you and you were talking to me, Lisa. I was hoping that I'm. I was hoping people were hearing it. You know, yes. I'm like, wow, just that portion of the conversation alone, that exchange, the real hurt and how the black community treats and sees you. And then the understanding from me sharing Why our black? side of the story right. without saying, excuse us, but understand us. Right. So like we just exchanged understanding and I can talk about policy. I can end this and be like, vote for me on October 3rd, which I hope y'all still do. Yeah. And, um, and vote now. Early <laughs> voting now is going on. Voting. You do not have to stand in long lines. But well, what my vision for Memphis is, as long as we choose to be in Memphis, is that we choose to make these conversations happen. Um, they have to get more intentional. They have to get bigger. Or the people who need that understanding the most are going to be the ones to lose out. So I built this campaign by saying, let's get a seat at the table, whether that seat at the table opens up the doors of city hall in two weeks or not, we've got to build this table in the city with or without city hall. Yeah. 
Yes, ma'am. Because we're not going away. No. We ain't going nowhere. We'll Are you going? Here. You going anywhere, Tammy? No. You going anywhere, no, Lisa? I'm, I'm stuck here. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I, I like living here, so we're good. So we'll see y'all soon. Now, Tammy, thank you. Thank you. So, oh, yeah. so much. Thank you so much. For being Another here golf club, okay? <laughs> I'll add to it, too. <laughs> thank you for bringing it. It was beauty. an honor to have you on our show. Thank and you. Your brilliance. And, and can I just say in closing, again, to the entire LGBTQ movement, community of Memphis. Thank you for still allowing me to be an aspiring ally. And that's all LGBTQ people, white and black. And I will continue to do this work and I will continue to strive to be uh, better than I was yesterday. And so thank you so much. And just this space has been very healing for me. Thank you. So what so we got from this is Tammy Sawyer is still a hater. <laughs> <laughs> Irrevocable. <laughs> no. No. I think that but, we... You know, I did vote for Willie Strickland. Willie Strickland. <laughs> hey, sometimes it seems like they fused into the same person. <laughs> Willie Strickland. Everybody who's listening out there, whether you are here or far away, know that we love you. Lisa's here. I'm here. And Tammy's here. So anytime that you're in Memphis, come and see us. Know that you have friends and family. Come hit us up. Yeah, hit us up. And Tammy, thank you so much. Everybody go out and use your power. Use your vote. Family Time Podcast is an OAM Network production. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and the OAMnetwork.com. Hosted by Lisa Michaels and Moth Moth Moth. Produced by Gil Worth. Logo and design by the legend of Shelda Designs. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. The OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.